Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you tonight in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As you are taking your copy of God's Word, be turning with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. As you are turning, let me take a moment to publicly express my great gratitude for the invitation to participate in this weekend as we consider the vital subject of believing prayer and to thank God for the men who have served us so well today from the Word of God. Let's pause now and ask God's blessings over our study, and then I want you to hear the reading of God's Word. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you and praise you for your indescribable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. We give you praise for the privilege of prayer that is ours in him, whose blood and righteousness opens for us a new and living way to you. We thank you, Father, for your word that is a lamp for our feet and a light for our pathway. We pray now that you would help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander, so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. I pray that you would grant me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and freedom. And may Christ alone be exalted as the word is explained as our prayer. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Here we get a picture of what I want to call mutual prayer for difficult times. This brief letter, and this brief letter to this young church, Paul teaches about the last days or end times. There was confusion, apparently, about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul writes about the coming of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Paul writes about the day of the Lord. The confusion remained. So Paul wrote this second letter to the church. In chapter 1, Paul again explains the coming of the Lord. In chapter 2, Paul discusses the man of lawlessness who will oppose Christ. And in chapter 3, Paul gives instructions for how the church should live in light of the imminent return of Christ. 
This is the pattern when the second coming of Christ is addressed in the New Testament. Explanation, then exhortation. The New Testament is clear and consistent that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. He will return to the earth personally, majestically, and unexpectedly. But the imminent return of Christ is not to be an excuse for us to live irresponsibly or to disconnect from the real world. We are to strive to live holy and godly and righteous lives, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in the first part of this letter, Paul declares the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and then he ends the letter with the responsibility of the saints to live in light of his imminent return. But in the middle, Paul gives the resource the saints can access in the meantime. It is the privilege, promise, and power of prayer. Paul faced difficulties in Corinth. The saints faced difficulty in Thessalonica, but Paul had a wise strategy for how they could be of help to one another. In the real sense, Paul says at the end of chapter 2 and here in the beginning of chapter 3, I'll pray for you, you pray for me. John O. was right when he said to us earlier, prayer is power. But I suggest to you tonight that there is a special dynamic power that is at work when pastor and people pray for one another. But to access this dynamic, to experience this dynamic, our prayers cannot be merely about ourselves. We see in the end of chapter 2 and now in the beginning of chapter 3 that Paul and the saints at Thessalonica prayed for one another, but their mutual prayers were not about themselves. They were not focused on themselves. They were focused on the Lord, who is mentioned four times in these five verses. And I want you to consider with me tonight three spiritual priorities that should drive our prayers with and for one another as pastor and people in the local church. The first priority is this, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 records Paul's prayer request for the church. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, we see Paul's prayer request to the church. Finally, brothers, pray for us. This is not unique. Paul 
regularly solicits the prayers of the saints on his behalf. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he says in almost identical language, brothers, pray for us. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. The Thessalonians were brand new Christians, yet Paul did not think that he was too big to ask for their prayers. And he did not think they were too little to pray for him. The grammar here of this prayer request denotes continual action. Paul solicited the saints to offer ongoing prayers for him and his missionary teams. The example of the Apostle Paul is a reminder to those of us who shepherd the people of God. Pastors need the prayers of the church. But not only do we see here that pastors need the prayers of the church, in a real sense we see here as well that the church needed to pray. The church needed to pray. The Thessalonians were facing difficulties for which in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul prays for comfort and that God would establish them. But whatever they was going through, Paul did not think that it was so great that he should not ask them to pray for him. Paul, in a real sense, seems to determine that the saints needed to pray just as much as they needed to be prayed for. This is the irony of prayer. Have you ever experienced, in some marvelous way, the burden you carry somehow becomes lighter when you take on the burdens of others in prayer? Job 42.10 says the Lord restored Job's fortunes after he prayed for his friends, and they weren't good friends. But he prayed for them. And there's a, there's a dynamic power that works through mutual prayer. And here, Paul makes two big prayer requests at the top of the chapter concerning the word of the Lord. He, on one hand, says, pray for the opportunity before us. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. This prayer request for Paul and Timothy and Silvanus is a statement about the, the primacy, the primacy of the word of God. Notice he doesn't ask merely for prayers for himself, but prayers that the word of God would make progress. We messengers are not indispensable. The message is. And so Paul prays or, or asks the church to pray that whatever's going on with him, that the message of the gospel would progress. Warren Worsby comments here, too much Christian work these days is accomplished by human plans and promotion, not by the Word of God. We trust our programs and do not publish the Word of God. May that not be true of us, brothers. May we have a holy passion and preoccupation for the Word of God. May we proclaim it and defend it and pass it on to the next generation. But this firm commitment to the Word of God requires believing prayer. Prayer and Scripture are inextricably linked to one another. 
both must be alive and well if the church is going to be healthy. And so Paul says, pray that the word of God, the word of the Lord will get out and get in. He says on one hand, pray that the word would get out. Again, notice he doesn't ask, well, he says pray for us, but really the request is not so much personal. He says pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. That the word may run ahead. Note this is a wonderful statement about the nature of Scripture. The word of God is not dead, idle, or passive. It's alive and active and on the move. And Paul says, pray that the word of God will run ahead. Psalm 147 verse 15 says, he sent out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Paul says, pray that the word of God, like a runner, speeding along on his course, will run ahead, that the word of God will get out. Brothers and sisters, if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, it should be our desperate prayer in these critical times that the word of God would speed ahead in gospel power in our communities, in this country, and throughout the nations. He says, pray that the word of God will get out. But then notice he says, pray that the word will get in. You do know that the word can get out without getting in. It can reach ears without reaching the heart. And so he says, pray that it will not just speed ahead, but that it will speed ahead and be honored. Psalm 138 Verse 2 says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Paul says, pray that the word of God would be honored as it speeds ahead. He's simply asking that they would pray that the word would be believed and obeyed that it would be believed and obeyed. And he gives us a standard by which to see how that will flesh itself out. Look at the end of verse 1. Just as it happened among you. Well, what happened among them? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work among you believers. Paul says, pray that what happened in Thessalonica will happen here in Corinth. Pray that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored and pray we should, that God would do the same thing where we serve, yes? 
Pray that the saving message of the biblical gospel would speed ahead where you serve and be honored. Paul says, pray for the opportunity before us, but then he says also, I need you to pray for the opposition against us. Not only pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, verse 2, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Verse 1 is a statement about the positive response to the gospel in Thessalonica. Now, verse 2 is about the negative response to the gospel in Corinth. In verse 1, Paul asked them to pray for the progress of the message. Now, in verse 2, he asked them to pray for protection for the messenger. In verse 1, we see Paul's humility, but in the real sense, we see now in verse 2, Paul's humanity. As he says, pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. They are wicked and evil. Stubborn unbelievers, wicked men. One commentator calls them morally insane. Evil men actively engaged to harm the message of the gospel. Pray that we would be delivered from these wicked and evil men. I'm also challenged by Paul here because Paul is facing some difficulty, but this is all he says about it. He doesn't spend a lot of time detailing the trouble and complaining about his opposition. And we know from the record of his time in Corinth that his concern was religious opposition which is a particularly heavy burden to carry, is it not? It's one thing for the message of the gospel to find opposition in the culture of the world we live in. It is a heavy burden to bear when you are called to preach in a place where there seems to be opposition right in the church. This is what Paul was facing. And he says, pray that we would be delivered. Same word used in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 in the model prayer we studied earlier that says, deliver us from evil. Pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men. And why does he pray for deliverance? Notice the last statement of verse 2, for not all have faith. That little statement makes a big point. Paul did not take personal things personally. He viewed it as a spiritual matter. It was a matter of faith. These wicked men were faithless men. And he viewed the opposition as a spiritual matter. And he bids the church to Cover him in believing prayer. It is a reminder, as a man of God, we fight on our knees. And so first then, Paul here tells us as we focus in prayer, mutual prayer for each other in difficult times, we should pray with a focus on the Word of the Lord. But secondly, would you notice not only is there a focus here on the Word of the Lord, 
There's also a focus on the faithfulness of the Lord. The faithfulness of the Lord. Verse 2 ends with a sad indictment. For not all have faith. Verse 3 begins with a wonderful assurance. Hold on to your seats. But the Lord is faithful. Loyalty is elusive. Who can you trust? Paul says, the Lord is faithful. His word is true. His love is loyal. His promises are faithful. His power is undiminished. His authority is unrivaled. The Lord is faithful. This is why we can pray with confidence. Whatever the circumstances, God is faithful. T.W. Smith comments here, no matter the state of the restless sea of humanity, be it the ebb and flow of human indifference or the violent swell of fierce opposition, the Lord controls the waves. And he is faithful in every situation. I thought you'd be more excited about that. <laughs> Think about this. He is faithful in salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. God is faithful in temptation. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted above measure, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you may bear up under it. God is faithful in confession. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful in sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24 says, the one who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He is faithful in every situation. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 declare the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His compassions never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He says the Lord is faithful. He's faithful to do his work in you. Look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Two assurances here. One is a, an assurance of internal stability. He, he will establish you. Chapter 2, 
Verse 17, Paul prays that God would establish them in every good work and word. And now that prayer request becomes a bold assurance. He will establish you. He will make you strong and steady and stable on the inside. If you trust the faithfulness of the Lord, if you lean on him in difficult times, he will establish you. Those of you here may know my part of my biography that I was called pastor of my first church at the age of 17. I didn't learn how to drive till I was almost 20. <laughs> Deacons drove me around everywhere. I got my first car and uh, all I knew about a car was that you put gas in it. <laughs> my wife Crystal would tell you that all I know about a car today is that you put gas in it. <laughs> and at some point, I got in the car and put the key in and the check engine light came on. But it started up. <laughs> so I didn't worry about it. Every time I got in the car, the light came on, but the car kept running, no problem. So I didn't pay that light any attention until one Friday night. When the car stopped, while I was on my way to preach, on the freeway in Los Angeles, <laughs> during rush hour, in the rain. <laughs> I've never ignored the check engine light again. <laughs> Brothers. Things like fear, anger, anxiety, frustration, irritability are the check engine lights of the heart that you ignore to your own peril. No matter how difficult your assignment is, it is never about the size of the problem. It is always about the location of it. Either it is standing between you and the Lord or it is pushing you closer and closer to Him. Paul says to these troubled saints, trust that He's working in you. He will establish you. And not only will He establish you, but He will guard you. He will guard you. He prayed, asked them to pray that he would be delivered from wicked and evil men, but now he gives them the assurance that the one who will establish you will also guard you against the evil one himself. Here's a reminder that some of the challenges we face are more than just interpersonal conflict. Differences of opinion, human wisdom clashing, we must remember that there is a real spiritual warfare taking place. 
Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning people are not your biggest problem. The enemy of our souls is always at work whenever you would lift up the name of Jesus to undermine the progress of the gospel and to overthrow your faith in Christ. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God is on guard. He will guard you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. He is faithful to do his work in you and he is faithful to do his work through you. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Here Paul is just uh, speaking as a pastor. He has given them commands in the first letter. We saw some of them earlier as Dr. Aiken ministered the word to us from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now he's coming back and he commends them. He says we have confidence in the Lord. You, you are doing what we have commanded, and we trust that you're going to do, you will do the things that we command in the days to come. He, he is affirming that these are true Christians. To be a Christian is to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. But here we are reminded that the evidence of true conversion is a life of obedience. Here, he says, you are doing the things that have been commanded, and you will do them. He is affirming and commending them as true Christians. But notice, even though he predicts their future, his confidence is not in them. We are confident in the Lord about you. You'll do it, but you're not the one who does it. We commend you, but, but it's not really you. Our confidence is in the Lord. This is why you cannot take credit for anything the Lord permits you to do for him. You should not get upset when they fail to give you the credit you think you deserve. And you should not get puffed up when you receive a compliment. You haven't done anything. In all that we have done, Christ has done it all. I have a tape of a sermon I preached as a boy. I'm holding on to that tape. I'll never listen to the tape, but I'm holding on to the tape. One of my dad's friends invited me to preach his youth day, and uh, usually my father would send one of the other men with me. He had them to drop me off. I was there to experience this alone. It was a long service there at the Pasadena Church, and uh, 
I was sitting in the pastor's study, and his study just kind of happened to be sitting off the parking lot, and I could see all of these people coming. And with every person that parked and started walking that sidewalk to come in, it's like my head was like, these people are coming to hear me. And I walked out, sat in a pulpit, and I could see the collective disappointment. <laughs> and it was, it was just the worst sermon ever. By the time I was midway through the sermon, half the church had left. And it was not until the service was over that I understood what took place. The local newspaper had made a mistake and put the picture of my dad, H.B. Charles Sr., in all of the advertisement. And the people had packed out the place to hear the wrong H.B. <laughs> but I hold on to that tape as a reminder, they didn't come to see me. And they don't come to see you. It's not about us, it's all about him. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm having trouble over here, you're having trouble over there. There's work before us. H how do we help each other? He says, I, I pray for you and you pray for me. And let's, in this prayer, focus, he says, first, on the word of the Lord. Secondly, the faithfulness of the Lord. Finally and quickly, the direction of the Lord. Notice this little benediction in verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Notice again, as Paul is offering this little benediction, this, this little prayer, it is not focused on their circumstances. He does not focus on... The, their, their circumstances in the prayer record, re, report recorded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He does not focus on their circumstances in the prayer report in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and he does not focus on their circumstances here. His concern is their heart. The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. Paul seems to suggest here that what's going on in us is always more important than what's going on around us. Your spiritual disposition is more important than your overwhelming circumstances. Whatever's going on, I'm praying for your heart, and I'm praying that God would direct your heart. That means to open the path or to clear away obstacles. God is able to do either one. He's able to set the path, and he's able to remove obstacles out of the way. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Paul does not pray that God would direct their hearts to victory over their enemies, or provision for their needs, or solution to their problems, or 
healing for their hurts or cessation of their troubles. Listen to what he says. I'm praying that God will direct your heart to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. I'm praying that whatever's going on, you will have a fresh and full assurance of the love of God for you in Christ. God is love. How do we know this? 1 John 4 and 9 says, in this was the love of God manifested, that God sent His only Son into the world that we may live through Him. Do not judge God's love by your circumstances. Measure His love by the bloody cross and empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Story is attributed to Spurgeon of a man walking down a country lane and sees a barn with a weather vane on top. And inscribed on the weather vane, were the words, God is love. He complained to the farmer that the sign was inappropriate. The weather vane moves with the blowing of the wind, he says, but God's love is steady and constant. The farmer said, you misunderstand the point of the sign. The point of the sign is, whatever way the wind blows, God is love. Paul says, I'm praying that you'll recognize that whatever direction the wind blows, God is love. And that he would direct your heart not only into a deeper experience of his love, but into the steadfastness of Christ. The steadfastness of Christ. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Elijah Hoffman visited a troubled member. She unburdened herself with all of the affliction she was going through, and when she finished, she said, Brother Elijah, I don't know what to do. What shall I do? He paused to read Scripture. Maybe like we do as pastors at times. Read some Scripture to give himself a moment to think of something to say. <laughs> and when he finished, the only thing that came to his mind to tell her was that with all of the burdens and troubles she was facing, the only solution was for her to tell Jesus. He was shocked the advice worked. Her face lit up. She said, you're right, I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. And as he left and went back to his study, he could still see her lit up face and her joyful voice. By the end of that day, he had formulated the words to the song that we sung before this message. 
I must tell Jesus all of my burdens. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me, for he ever loves and cares for his own. May this be the spirit in which we live where we serve as pastor and people. Paul says, I'll pray for you. You pray for me. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for its truth, its wisdom, and its authority. Thank you that you've given us this privilege of prayer, but thank you for the reminder that prayer is not about getting our will done on, in heaven. It's about getting your will done on earth. May we learn to pray with spiritual priorities. May we focus our prayers on the advancement of your word in this world that desperately needs the saving message of Jesus Christ. May we pray with confidence that your faithfulness is great and unchanging and constant. May we pray with a priority on the condition of our hearts more than the state of our circumstances. Teach us to pray bathed in the wonderful assurance that you have loved us with a perfect love in Christ. And our steadfast Christ is one to whom we can cast all our cares as he cares for us in Jesus' name. Amen.